Hello, and welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.14, Hong's Opium War. We've spent the last six episodes talking about the challenges that confronted the Qing Empire and its over 400 million people in the 1820s and 1830s. First, there was the acute shortage of silver that drove a spiral of silver-denominated inflation. A century and a half of rising population squeezed the peasants, who made up most of the population, onto smaller and more marginal plots of land. Meanwhile, the leaders of the Qing Empire focused their attention on the ever-increasing opium imports from British India as the cause of their woes. The flood of illegal opium poisoned the people and sent the empire's silver sailing away on foreign ships. Though hindsight reveals that revolution in Mexico and policy changes in the United States was probably more decisive reason for the major trade imbalance, opium purchases were the proximate and most visible cause. After waffling and strongly considering legalizing opium to promote its domestic production, the Daoguang Emperor doubled down on prohibition and ordered a major crackdown on opium flowing into the city of Guangzhou. To accomplish this, he dispatched Lin Zixu, an incorruptible rising star of the Qing administration. Lin was at first incredibly successful and got the British to turn over their entire stocks of illegal opium in what I think is history's largest ever drug bust. Lin's success, however, didn't last long. Britain's Foreign Secretary, Lord Palmerston, didn't want the drug trade to end. He ordered a military expedition to force the Qing to pay for the seized opium, seized land for a new British colony, open additional ports to trade, and make other diplomatic concessions. The fighting went off and on for three years. In 1842, the Qing finally agreed to British demands to prevent the attack and probable seizure of Nanjing, the provincial capital of China's richest province. At the end of the last episode, I listed what I thought we were going to talk about this episode, but as I worked on it, I threw that plan out. I want to use this episode instead to examine a single question. What impact did the Opium War have on Hong Shiquan and the world that surrounded him? The story of the Opium War is usually told as part of a wider narrative of European colonial expansion and the beginning of a quote-unquote century of humiliation from the perspective of the modern Chinese state. We focused on this great man history last episode, though men like Charles Eliot or Kishan were in truth mediocre men born into privilege, fighting to defend or expand the power and wealth of their fellow elites and the empires they managed. By following the decisions and viewpoints of the Qing elite in particular, it's easy to forget that the fighting and the loss of the Opium War was far, had far-reaching consequences for tens of millions of everyday people living in the Qing Empire. Hong Shiquan was one of those ordinary people affected by the war. However, I think he drew very, very different lessons from the war and its aftermath than most others in Guangdong province. Hong didn't embrace the increasing anti-British sentiments sparked by the war in and around Guangzhou, especially among the Yuan-speaking majority. Instead, Hong saw in the British a people who followed a powerful god, one that two millennia of imperial ideology had replaced with false idols in demon worship. Worship of Confucius and Buddhist bodhisattvas, 
the practice of dark Taoist magic. It was these that led the people of China away from the all-powerful Father of Heaven, who the authors of the classics called Shangdi. In Shangdi and his heavenly kingdom, Hong found truth and order in the chaos and turmoil that surrounded him in the aftermath of the Opium War. I want to say up front that the evidence we have for what Hong thought about the fighting we now call the Opium War, or how it impacted him, is entirely circumstantial. To my knowledge, neither Hong nor any of the other Taiping leaders ever mentioned the conflict in their writings. So we don't know what exactly he knew or thought about it. With that disclaimer in mind, however, there is very strong evidence that not only did Hong know about the Opium War, but the conflict was a decisive event in his evolution from local school teacher and wannabe Qing bureaucrat to the leader of a religious and revolutionary movement that sparked the most violent and destructive civil war the world has ever seen. The war and its aftermath impacted Hong directly and dramatically changed his perspective on the world. The conflict demonstrated in stark terms the impotence of the Qing imperial cult and its rituals and idols in the face of foreigners worshipping a very different god. The conflict and fallout from the Treaty of Nanjing also destabilized life in southern China and created fertile ground for the Taiping movement to take root and grow. It's been a while since we spent time with Hong Shiquan, so let's do a quick recap. Hong Shiquan was born to a peasant family and grew up in a hill village about 30 miles north of Guangzhou. Hong's family was Hakka, descendants of migrants that moved south during the civil wars associated with the Manchu conquests in the mid-17th century. The Hongs traced their lineage back to powerful state bureaucrats of the 11th and 12th century Song dynasty, and the family still dreamed of rejoining the ranks of the bureaucratic elite. Hong began attending school at the ages of five or six and showed great promise. He began climbing the exam ladder at the age of 13 and started off well, but when he reached the provincial exam in Guangzhou, he hit a wall. After failing to pass it on his third attempt in 1837, he was so weak from the three-day exam that he had to be carried home, where he collapsed into bed. His family later recalled that he was delirious and mad, and had to be physically restrained to prevent him from hurting himself or others in fits of rage. But Hong was not mad, or at least he didn't think so. For Hong, it was a religious experience, a vision, a transcendent journey to the heavens. He met his heavenly family, his father Shangdi, mother, brothers, sisters, wife, and a son. He fought demons and enjoyed dinner parties. After a while, Shangdi ordered him back to earth. He told him, you've got to go back, son. How will the people on earth reach enlightenment and ascend to heaven if you're not there to save them from the demons and teach them the ways of heaven? Back on earth, Hong's life slowly returned to normal. He taught at a local school in the village of his stepmother and studied for a fourth attempt at the provincial exam. Six years later, in the spring of 1843, Hong made that attempt and again failed. A few months later, a distant cousin of his stepmother's clan, the Li family, visited and asked to borrow a book from Hong's collection entitled Good Words for Exhorting the Age. Hong recalled to his cousin the circumstances by which he had acquired the book. In 1836, 
Hong took the provincial exam in Guangzhou for the second time. One day, when he came out of the exam hall, he saw a strange man preaching to a small crowd. The man was dressed in the style of the Ming Empire, centuries out of date. His speech was hard to understand, but a more appropriately dressed man translated beside him. The next day, upon coming out of the exam hall again, probably dejected from his poor performance, Hong saw the pair again. This time, he approached, and they spoke for a while. At the end of the conversation, the pair handed him a bundle of nine small volumes. The man in the strange dress who spoke to Hong and gave him the books was almost certainly the American missionary Edwin Stevens. The Reverend Edwin Stevens arrived in Guangzhou in 1832. He started off preaching to foreign sailors of all nationalities, men who were born in predominantly Christian nations, and worked his best to keep them on the straight and narrow and away from the Guangzhou drink called firewater, a blend of raw alcohol, tobacco juice, sugar, and arsenic, you know, just for a good kick. Stevens worried for these Christian souls and set up a coffee and tea shop to try to lure the sailors away from more toxic stimulants. But sailors didn't make the most receptive of audiences, and Stevens dreamed of doing something bigger, more important. One in three souls on earth lived in Qing China. What if he could find a way to reach them and convert them to Christ? So in 1835, Stevens took a leave from his work tending to the wayward souls of sailors and joined our friend Carl Gutzloff aboard an American opium trading ship that took him hundreds of miles north along the coast north to Shanghai, seeing sights, sailing his longboat up rivers and waterways, and handing out Christian tracts as he went. Over two voyages in the spring and fall of 1835, Stevens distributed over 20,000 books and pamphlets along the coasts of Guangdong and Fujian provinces. The trips were not without danger. Chinese war junks trailed the American brig along the coast, and men sometimes followed Stevens as he went inland. They were fired upon at least once, injuring two crewmen. Another time, his pamphlets were seized by local authorities and burned in front of him. These voyages caught the attention of the emperor, who issued an edict condemning the distribution of pamphlets by men like Stevens and Gutsoff. Local authorities from Guangzhou raided their printer in Macau in early 1836 and issued a proclamation to the residents of Macau, Guangzhou, and the surrounding areas. Turn over all the pamphlets and books that talk about this Jesus fellow, and we'll forgive you. But if we catch you with them after six months, you will be treated without mercy. At the time of the raid, Stevens was in Guangzhou, handing out pamphlets to exam candidates such as Hong Shikong. I don't know if Hong realized that he'd had banned books in his possession, but I think it's more likely than not he did and simply didn't care. Soon after meeting Hong Shikong, Stevens left Guangzhou for good to preach in Borneo, where there were plenty of souls to save and perhaps a ruler who wasn't so keen on stopping him. Unfortunately, he never made it. Toward the end of 1836, he was struck by blinding headaches and a high fever, perhaps yellow fever. He died three weeks later, at the age of 34. The collection of pamphlets that Stephen gave Hong was titled Good Words for Exhorting the Age, and was written by a Guangzhou native and Chinese Protestant named Liang Fa, the first ordained Protestant evangelist born in China. We don't know if Hong read Good Words when Stevens gave it to him in 1836. It seems that 
he was at least intrigued by what this strangely dressed foreigner was preaching. It's easy enough to walk past street preacher if you want. He probably read a bit of it as well. Hong Shikon was an extremely literate man who read, wrote, and taught his entire life, even when he probably had more important things to do. What's certain is that good words didn't resonate with Hong until his cousin borrowed it, read it, and implored him to read it as well. It didn't speak to Hong until he read it and read it again and again in 1843. A lot happened to and around Hong between 1836 and 1843. In 1837, he failed the provincial exams for the third time, followed by his visions and a visit to his heavenly father, Shangdi. Two years later, war came to Guangzhou, and the rhythms of life and the economy in the entire region were irretrievably broken. The Opium War and its fallout put the world in a new stark light, and good words helped Hong make sense of why the world was changing around him and what he should do about it. For the residents of Lingnan, especially in and around Guangzhou, the conflict didn't begin when Charles Elliott's gunboats first fired on Chinese junks in November of 1839, or in the spring of 1841 when British infantry seized Guangzhou's forts, surrounded and threatened to bombard the city. The war began when Lin Zexu arrived from Beijing in early March of 1839 to crush the opium trade and stop the flood of silver leaving the empire. We spent the last two episodes looking at how this led to war with the British Empire. But Lin Zexu's first priority and most important mission was to destroy the local opium economy. Lin did his best to implement what we would now identify as a police state to destroy the opium trade. Thousands were arrested, and the rest were put on notice. Though Lin Zexu was less alien to the people of Guangzhou than Madras infantry or Scottish marines, he was still foreign to the Wei majority of Guangzhou. He was a government bureaucrat who traveled more than 2,000 kilometers to get up in everyone's business where most people didn't want him. To accomplish this mission, Lin Zexu resurrected an old Chinese institution called the Baojia, the Baojia system was formalized in the 11th century Song dynasty, though its roots go back much further. During the Song, the system both facilitated military conscription and fostered mutual compliance and surveillance among the people of the empire. In the classic Baojia, every household was registered and organized into groups of 10 households. Five of those formed a unit of 50 households, and then 10 of those a unit of 500 households called a bao. Each family in the unit guaranteed the behavior of all the other families, with ultimate responsibility rising up to a single family that was responsible then to an imperial magistrate. The bao and its subunits were also used to organize militia for local defense. At other times, they were used to collect taxes and provide labor for civil construction projects. There was a lot of regional and temporal variation in the structure. In all their forms, the Baojia organized family units to help enable top-down control through collective responsibility and punishment. The Baojia was propagated throughout the Qing Empire early in its dynasty, but by the early 19th century it had mostly fallen out of use. Lin Zexu resurrected the Baojia and ordered families to be organized into groups of five. 
Each family was responsible for ensuring none of the other four smoked or traded opium. In Guangzhou and other large nearby cities, this was managed and directed through the official Qing-appointed bureaucracy. In the rural areas outside of the big cities, the rural gentry were recruited to organize and enforce the Baojia. The gentry is a fairly broad category referring to local notables and wealthy individuals such as landlords and prosperous traders. This was a critical break from the older design and use of the Baojia, which always placed government officials at the top of the system. The gentry, who Lin considered to be public-spirited and upright, were given broad discretion to investigate the families under their control and punish wrongdoers. Karl Gutzloff left an account of what happened. Quote, the prisons were crowded with victims, the innocent being the major part. Many died in them. Informers prospered. Capitalists were purposefully involved in crimes to get a hold of their property. And strange to say, the introduction of the drug was, when the panic had passed, resumed with great vigor. End quote. Thousands were executed, mostly in public beheadings. I don't know for sure if Hong Shiquan and his family were recruited into a Baojia, but I think it's more likely than not. Under Hong's leadership, the Taiping adopted a very similar system of organization as the basis for their army and society, though there were other common traditions in Chinese history from which Hong and his lieutenants drew inspiration. Hong also had a puritanical personality and condemned opium use in some of his earliest religious writings. The Ten Commandments that formed one of the core tenets of Taiping belief included a commandment against gambling and opium smoking. The Baojia was just one example of how Lin Zixu sought to harness the power of the people with a capital P. The historian Frederick Waitman writes that Lin believed, quote, the people of China were the great imponderable of Confucian history. The people could save or destroy, restore or overthrow. If ever morally mobilized, they could not be beaten. Even as defeat piled upon defeat, that faith did not lessen. End quote. During his standoff with Charles Eliot in March 1839, Lin threatened that he could assemble groups of the people at a moment's notice to exterminate the British if they continued to ignore his demands. Lin showed his faith in people power by embracing local self-defense militias called Tuanlian associations. These were typically organized and paid for by local gentry. The Tuan was the most basic unit, consisting of defense for a single village, and sometimes a central village, surrounded by other smaller villages and hamlets. When the Qing military forces deployed to a given region were not strong enough to handle the threat there, Magistrates typically started by hiring local yong, a word that often is translated as braves. These were essentially semi-professional mercenaries. During the defense of Guangzhou, Lin Zixu hired thousands of Tonka boatmen to fight off the renewed British attacks. Many of these men had formerly been employed as opium smugglers and were out of work now thanks to Lin's crackdown and need of a paycheck. The yong were typically paid for by the rich local elites flexing their political power, or from state coffers. Typically, they were recruited by the Qing-appointed scholar bureaucrats like Lin Zixu and commanded by regular military officers. 
Lin's Tonka boatmen, for example, were paid through special taxes on the Hong merchants, salt traders, and other long-distance merchants. It was only after these additional troops failed to turn the tide that the Tuanlian became involved. The Tuanlian of the 19th century didn't look exactly the same in every place and every time. Sometimes local Qing officials had command or influence, while at other times it was a purely local affair. A single organized militia from a village or town was known as a small Tuan. A number of these small Tuan coordinating defense in a confederation was dubbed a large Tuan. It's these large Tuan that formed the active component of the Tuanlian system, since they typically had the resources and leadership for concrete action. When I talk about Tuan or Tuanlian going forward, that's what I'm describing. These large Tuan also organized and aligned with other large Tuan to form confederated Tuan, more formally known as Shi or associations. At this level of organization, operations became professionalized. Soldiers were recruited from the constituent Tuan and served for paid wages. Funding was raised, typically from rich gentry, to purchase the necessary supplies, weapons, and other material. The historian Philip Kuhn writes that, quote, it was in this pooling of resources, more than in its power to command the movements of units below it, that the association was the most significant in 19th century local organization in China, end quote. After he was fired from his top position in Guangzhou, but before his exile to Xinjiang, Lin Zixu paid for the training of 800 militia members from Tuanlian associations. A more typical Tuanlian leader was a major local landowner, often with at least some Confucian education, maybe a lesser degree. Until 1850, the Qing's policy was for soldiers in a Tuan to be directly controlled by the local magistrate and they were only expected to fight as part of hyper-local defense, basically of their own village or region. Control of the Tuanlian by magistrates, as well as their exclusive defense of home and hearth, fell by the wayside during the Taiping Civil War, and this change of who commanded the people had massive consequences for China over the following century. The power of the Baojia and Tuanlian systems to raise a very large number of fighters can be seen in a series of skirmishes that occurred near the village of San Yuanli in the spring of 1841. In the days after Yishan ransomed Guangzhou to the British to avoid the shelling of the city, there were about 5,000 British infantry and marines left surrounding the city with no organized Qing army left in sight. The occupying soldiers took the opportunity to go out into the countryside to loot and plunder. Expropriation of food and clothes from peasant households was policy, managed and directed by British officers. In one village, a white officer commanding an infantry unit from Madras broke into some tombs near a temple to see just how the local Chinese embalmed their dead. There were at least five other incidents where British soldiers broke open tombs to see if there was anything worth stealing. The locals, whose relatives were buried there and maintained the tombs, were not very happy about this, to say the least. There were also several documented incidents where British soldiers raped local women. Rapes perpetrated by the quote-unquote black soldiers from Madras and Bengal particularly enraged the local communities. It was very common 
for Southern Chinese people to hold racist attitudes against darker-skinned people. It was also true, as we saw last episode, that fear of foreigners wasn't exclusive to blacks, but extended to people from other provinces of the Qing Empire, people whose descendants today are considered Han Chinese. But the fact that these were black rapists was considered even more insulting by the local populations. On May 29th, British soldiers forced their way into a house in a small hamlet near the town of San Yuan Li and attacked the family inside. Neighbors banded together, however, to drive them out and sounded the gongs to call out the local Tuan Lian. Every man aged 16 to 60 assembled, armed with hand weapons like spears and swords, and immediately began to construct barricades on local paths and ambush British patrols nearby. By the next morning, May 30th, about 7,500 militia members were under arms, some now armed with muskets. The British general ordered a regiment from Madras to attack the gathering army. The regiment drove the militia back for several miles before breaking off the assault. However, on their way back to camp, they were hit with a driving rainstorm, disorienting them and turning their flintlocks into heavy short spears. The sky lit up with lightning and thunder boomed. One company of men was separated from the main group and ambushed. A melee ensued in which one of their men was nearly hacked to death by the attacking militia. Surrounded, they formed an infantry square and managed to fight off the attacks until another British unit was able to relieve them. The day's fighting cost the British five dead and 23 wounded. Militia casualties are unknown. On the following morning, May 31st, the British general summoned the local magistrate and told them to call off the militia or the British would resume their attack on Guangzhou. The summoned leaders told the British that they had nothing to do with these attacks, that these were just rowdy peasants who had just gotten out of hand. But behind the scenes, the local magistrates met with the gentry who had organized the militia, now numbering nearly 20,000 from over 100 villages, and convinced them to go home for now. The next day, the British infantry withdrew altogether and rode back out to their ships. Resistance to the British occupiers didn't form spontaneously, but was organized top-down from a confederated Tuan. The Chinese historian Philip Kuhn writes that, quote, On May 25th, a gentry conference near the village of San Yuan Li resolved to resist the British with arms and set about raising militia from a wide area. When the incident actually took place on the last three days of the month, the British faced an angry crowd that swelled to perhaps 20,000 militiamen, drawn from an area of a hundred-odd villages, it spread over portions of two districts, end quote. Fighting between Tuan Lian and British troops during late May of 1841 wasn't limited to San Nuan Li. A young scholar named Li Fushan led a force of about 500 water braves to harass the British along the shorelines as they tried to land their infantry. A group of rich gentry outside of Guangzhou had recruited Lin to organize coastal defenses in the aftermath of a battle earlier in the year, and by May, he commanded a force of 500 men and 16 war junks. Lin raised many of these men by convincing the leaders of local villages to join their village militias with his and form a strong confederated Tuan. He distributed large gongs to each member village so that if one came under attack, they could call for help. A decade after the Opium War ended, Lin joined and served the Taiping for around a decade as an important military advisor and commander before dying in battle.
For the British, the skirmishes around San Yuanli were not deemed worthy of mention in their official correspondence. But in the newspapers of Guangzhou, in stories and tales shared through the region, San Yuanli was a stunning victory that demonstrated the power of the common Chinese peasant in the face of foreign invaders. In these tales, the number of British casualties were several hundred, and the number of Guangdong braves several times as large as other sources attest. One of the leaders of a Tuan that fought at San Yuanli was also a poet, and he remembered the event by writing, quote, Cherishing the Qing, we embody loyalty and righteousness. All militia stand bravely erect, the gentry who lead and the peasants who fight. The first, leading the infantry and heading the rivermen, are the claws of the dragon, planning and scheming, while the tiger troops are marshaled in lines. End quote. Frederick Waitman writes that, quote, A generation of Cantonese believed that peasant troops had smashed the British attacking force. End quote. A lore developed around the battle, with the heights of victory growing. Tens of British troops killed, then a hundred, then several hundred. But unlike the poet commander who we just heard from, many did not see this as a fight that reflected positively on the Qing. Many couldn't help but notice that it was the men of the Tuanlian that had held the battlefield at the end of the day, not the Qing Green Army or their bannermen. And it was the Qing magistrate who had forced them to disperse, not British arms. This set of facts did not help relations between the residents of Guangdong and the Qing dynasty. The lyrics from one of their local songs went, quote, We do not understand why our great net should be opened, and the fish inside, gasping for breath, be allowed to escape. Our officials are like the traitors of antiquity who compromised with the tribes from the north. End quote. The Qing were obviously a quote, tribe from the north, and it was not forgotten that during the Qing conquest of the 17th century, Guangzhou had suffered a particularly horrendous fate with hundreds of thousands slaughtered for their resistance to the invaders. After Sun Yuan Li, one participating Tuanlian published a flyer that proclaimed, We do not need official troops, nor help from the state. Plaques posted to celebrate the bravery of the Tuanlian militiamen at Sun Yuan Li did not forget the brutality Qing troops had visited upon the people during Lin Zexu's crackdowns and the subsequent fighting. Better to die at the hands of the British than at those of the government troops, it read. When the Qing magistrate, who had ordered the Tuanlian to be disbanded, arrived to oversee the provincial exams in late summer of 1841, he was assaulted by the students who pelted him with their inkwells. They shouted, We have spent our lives studying the sacred books of the sages. We all know what integrity, righteousness, and honor are. We will not sit for exams adjudicated by a traitor. As the magistrate fled in a litter, the students rushed after and tried to break in and haul him out to beat him or worse. Hatred for suspected traitors wasn't limited to the Qing magistrate. Anyone suspected of collaboration with the foreigners found themselves targeted for reprisals and punishment. Over a thousand were killed, many by militia organized through the Tuanlian system. As I said at the beginning of the episode, we don't know what Hong Shiquan was up to during the spring of 1841, but I think it's very likely that he knew about what happened at San Yuanli and Guangzhou. At least one of the Tuan that answered the call to fight the British at San Yuanli 
had come from Hua, Hong's home county. I haven't seen any evidence that Hong himself joined one of these militias, but as a scholar and local teacher with family and friends all over the county, he was presumably well aware of what was happening, even if he hadn't personally taken up arms. Sun Yuan Li rose to mythic proportions and was very well known in the area. Hong didn't sit for the exams in 1842 where the candidates assaulted the magistrate, but he probably knew some who did. Accounts of Hong, after failing his exam the next year in 1843, say that he vented his frustrations on the Manchu and the Qing dynasty. On the boat home from Guangzhou, he cursed his examiners and condemned the Manchus and all of the dynasty officials, men whose ranks Hong had spent his entire life until now trying to join. The Qing failure to defend Guangzhou may have contributed to the shattering of his faith in the existing government as it had for so many others. The fighting around San Yuan Li at the end of May 1841 proved to be the last episode of fighting of the Opium War in Lingnan. Once Sir Pottinger arrived in August, he gathered up the bulk of the British forces and sailed north. Since it's been a while since the territory of Lingnan was important to our story, here's a quick review. Lingnan literally means south of the Nanling Mountains and it is a subtropical area that is largely made up of two Chinese provinces, Guangdong and Guangxi, as well as small pieces of a few other provinces and part of northern Vietnam. Guangdong province is in the east of Lingnan, while Guangxi is in the west. If you want to go back and refresh your memory, we covered this in a lot more detail in episode 1.6. The fallout of the Opium War struck Lingnan hard after the Treaty of Nanjing was signed in the summer of 1842. The treaty opened up four treaty ports where British and other foreign traders would be allowed to trade with Chinese merchants. Those treaty ports were Xiamen, modern-day Amoy, Fuzhou, Ningbo, and Shanghai. The Qing also ceded Hong Kong Island, located right near Guangzhou in the Pearl River Delta, which quickly grew from scattered hamlets into a bustling city. These ports didn't just allow foreign trade to expand, but also redirected a lot of it away from Guangzhou. Before the Opium War, all of the tea, silks, opium, and silver that was traded at Guangzhou had to travel to and from the city. Some was produced and traded locally, but huge quantities were grown and produced north of Lingnan in the Yangtze watershed. Before the Opium War, it had to be transported south, across the mountains, especially through the Meiling Pass in Guangdong and the Ling Canal in Guangxi. After Shanghai and Ningbo opened to foreign trade, however, the north-to-south traffic to Lingnan dried up and Guangzhou was only left with goods produced south of the Nangling Mountains for export. Between 1845 and 1849, tea exports from Guangzhou fell by nearly half, while silk exports dropped by three-quarters. All the while, total British purchases from the Qing Empire as a whole soared. This change in trade patterns threw 100,000 porters and 10,000 boatmen out of work. Many turned to banditry, which further suppressed commerce between Lingnan and the Yangtze River. Trade in Guangzhou was also hampered by the refusal of Qing officials to let the British enter Guangzhou proper, because they experienced immense local pressure from the residents to keep the British out. Local anti-British sentiments in Guangzhou were strong after the Opium War. When the Qing prefect of Guangzhou, a 
attempted to honor the Treaty of Nanjing and open the city to British traders in 1846, he was chased out of the city by a bloodthirsty mob. Leading gentry opposed to the British professed loyalty to the emperor despite his treaty obligations and focused their anger on his appointees. It was a dynamic reminiscent of British colonists in North America professing loyalty to the king on the one hand while disobeying and condemning parliament with the other. These disruptions in trade and the economic systems of Lingnan, combined with the continuance of silver-denominated inflation, drove many into what the Qing sources call banditry. The bandits were a diverse group, including ex-mercenaries, out-of-work opium smugglers, river pilots, and men who simply lacked opportunity at home. They operated on a scale from part-time petty criminals to organized crime up to revolutionary movements that counted thousands of members. Many joined secret societies, which we'll discuss in greater detail in a future episode. The gentry of Lingnan kept their militias organized after the Opium War was over to help protect local villages and farmland against all of this social disorder and endemic violence. It was in this post-war climate, which grew only more intense through the 1840s, that Hong Shiquan revisited Liang Fa's good words to admonish the age. In the collection's opening words, Hong read a quote from a foreign scholar named Isaiah. Quote, The whole heart is sick, the whole heart faint. Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers, devour it in your presence, and it is desolate, as other thrown by strangers. End quote. Liang Fa presented a world of good and evil, of law and transgression. It was a world where there was one true God, and all of the other gods were demons and idolatrous. And it was these demons that had led the Chinese people astray. As we'll see next episode, the extra strong condemnation that Liang Fa heaps onto idolaters was shared by Hong. Other portions of Good Words spoke to Han's recent experience as well. Liang doesn't list the Ten Commandments as presented in Exodus, but he does present a list given by Jesus to a rich man for what is needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. Liang's version goes, Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do honor your parents, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. To this, he added the sin of smoking opium, something that surely resonated with Hong, whose puritanical dislike of opium seems to have been deeply rooted. Liang is also quite clear about the fate that awaits the unbelievers and sinners, a final judgment where God will separate the sinners from the righteous and punish the former and their idols in eternal torment. In a world unsettled by war and social and economic disruption, the words in Liang Fa's nine volumes spoke to Hong, and presented him with the key to making sense of it all. Liang Fang's good words does not shy away from the fact that Christian beliefs are foreign and were brought to China by foreigners who converted him to his new faith. The biblical excerpts presented by Liang Fa were filled with foreign names and places. Liang Fa also addresses the question about why the Chinese classics didn't mention anything about Jesus, even though he lived on the same continent. Liang finds a simple answer, that the classics were composed centuries before Jesus lived. I think it's especially interesting that Hong Shi Quan embraced an explicitly foreign religion after the Opium War. Because as we've seen, local attitudes in and around Guangzhou 
were very much against the invading barbarians, at least among the Yue-speaking majority. As a Hakka speaker, Hong may have already felt excluded and a subject of Yue prejudice, instead of part of the main us against the British other. Did this create a Yue versus British feeling in which Hong Shiquan, as a Hakka, felt the British were sympathetic because they were his enemy's enemies? I'm not sure how much of this was a factor in 1843, but we'll see that ethnic tensions and violence between Hakka, Iwe speakers, and other non-Hakkas will be a very big deal in the early god-worshipper communities in Guangxi in the second half of the 1840s. Next episode, Hong and several friends will embrace this new faith in the Most High God, Hong's father from his visit to heaven in 1836. Hong will smash beloved local idols, get fired from his job, and set out on the road to bring his new god to the hills of Guangxi to plant the first seeds of what will become the Society of God Worshippers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews really help other listeners find the show. If you've got any feedback for the show, comments, questions, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectPod. Thanks for listening.